Welcome, everybody, to the Always Hope Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mari Sakasa, and truly honored to have you joining me today. Humana Vitae was the landmark encyclical by Pope Paul VI, reaffirming the Catholic Church's teachings against contraception. What was going on in 1968? Why did Paul VI see the need to write this encyclical, and why was there such pushback against it? Joining me on the show today to talk about Humana Vitae is Dr. Teresa Notari, the Assistant Director of the Natural Family Planning Program of the Secretary of Laity, Marriage, Family Life, and Youth at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops in Washington, D.C. That is a title. She also holds a Ph.D. in Catholic Church History from the Catholic University of America, making her the perfect person to talk to about the historical context and the lingering effects of Humana Vitae. In today's episode, we talk about how she got into NFP ministry, how the 1960s saw the third wave of modern feminism, how in America we saw a rise of a strict pragmatism, how Carol Wojtyla played a major role in making Humana Vitae happen, and the harsh critique from professors at Catholic University of America following its release, and where we stand now as an American church on contraception. Another great episode for you today is about to get underway, but when it is done, don't forget to head on over to our website, faithinmarriage.org, to hear past episodes of Always Hope or to learn more about our upcoming events. All right, everybody, let's get into this conversation with Dr. Teresa Natari. Dr. Teresa Natari, welcome to the Always Hope podcast. How are you doing today? Terrific. Thanks for having me. It is a sincere pleasure and honor to have you. So introduce yourself to the audience. How, how did you get into this work of natural family planning ministry there at the USCCB? Well, that's a, a kind of funny story, and it's a little bit of a long story, but I'll try to make it short. Well, take your time. Um, I, I can edit. It's just no big deal. So. <laughs> Way back when I was a child, I wanted to be a nun, <laughs> which is true. Which is, which is praise true. God. Praise God. I did, want, I did want to be a religious sister, and for various reasons, I, I decided to freelance for God and not go into religious life. And I thought I was going to then be a professor um, and especially focus in on ecumenical relations. Uh, as a child, it grieved me that Christianity was splintered into different churches. And, uh, and it was something that I really wanted to work on. But at the beginning of my graduate work in, um, in uh, theology, uh, I met the founder of the Bishop's Conference Natural Family Planning Program. Um, uh, at the time, he was Monsignor James T. McHugh, and um, he needed somebody to work for him in the summer. It was the summer of 1984 because he was preparing for the Mexico City Population Conference at which the Mexico City policy that would prohibit abortion um, um, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, by NGOs going into right. other countries and all of that. Uh, he was one of the um, pivotal people who really fought for the pro-life position at that conference, and he hired me to help him. And that was the first time I ever heard about natural family planning. Okay. Um, I grew up in a, a very religious Catholic household, Italian-American in New Jersey. And um, my parents practiced the rhythm method. Um, 
uh, and we had four um, four siblings, you know, uh, in my family. Uh, they wanted to have more, but God didn't give them more. So I, the ish, whole issue of family planning was never um, on um, the front burner in, in my life, uh, in our house. Um, I never even, uh, by the time I met Bishop McHugh, I was in my 20s, um, uh, I think I was in my early 20s by the time I met him um, because I was on my way to graduate school. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't I didn't know anything about that whole area of life. And I was quite frankly more interested in early church history. <laughs> <laughs> but every summer I would work for Bishop McHugh. And um, when I was done with um, the coursework and just writing the thesis, he said, why don't you work for me full time? And okay. I said to him, um, Temporarily, Father. Sure, I don't have a job, so I'll just I'll do it now, and then I, I have to go on for a doctorate, and I want to be a professor and whatever. And he kept saying to me, "I'm telling you, um, family life and life issues are where it's at in the church right now. This is what you need to focus on." And I would say to him, "But no, no, no. God's given me this other interest, but I'll help you out. I'll just help you out." And and I did, and um, uh. It was, that was 1984, you said? Is that... that was 1984 yeah. when I started working for him, and he kept trying to tell me to stick with marriage and family life as an issue in the church. Um, but it wasn't until Lent of 1987 where I was focusing um, in that Lent on um, abandonment, you know, oh. abandonment to Christ. And um and I kept thinking, well, of course, I've in, I've abandoned myself. To, look at what I'm doing. I'm trying to work for him in the church, and I'm, I'm trying. And and I had this goal of uh, professor and church history and ecumenism. And all of a sudden, I have to say, as I was Xeroxing papers in the office, and we had a satellite office in New Jersey at that time in uh, 1987, it became very clear to me, uh, will you let go mm. of your goals? Mm. Like, will you let go of the let go of the goal of becoming a professor and um, uh, love for ecumenism? And I thought, wow, I'm really holding back, aren't I? I because I was thinking this is what you wanted me to do, Lord God, and that was it. I just let it go. I, I distinctly remember just looking up at the clock at that point and saying, "Yeah, okay, I'll let it go." And from that moment on. I have to say, I had no goal except for to do God's will. Um, And Bishop McHugh um, quickly kept giving me more and more responsibilities in our office because I I truly was just support staff to him. But he kept training me and giving me more responsibilities uh, until he asked me to move to Washington, D.C. in 1990. Um, But yeah, that's how I got into it. And in terms, though, I have to say of a true conversion of understanding the depth and the meaning and importance of natural family planning ministry, I I would say that it took another three years um, from 1987, yeah, maybe to like 1989. um, It took about three years of me working with the diocesan NFP coordinators um, uh, who were leaders, you know, in, in the nation, 
And um, they were candid about their married their married lives. Um, they were candid about um, using and 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 not being with the church. You know, basically using contraception before they had their own conversions, and um, and um, and then seeing how it changed their lives. And I have to say, when I first studied the, the teachings, because the first thing Bishop McHugh gave me to read was Casti um, Canubii, <laughs> then Humane Vitae. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> he did it in order. In order. That's, that's the order. <laughs> that's what he did, as well as that uh, section of Gaudium et Spes on marriage and family life. He had me read all of that. And Familiaris Consortio by 1981, sure. I guess it was, right? Yeah. Um, but I remember saying to him, and he, we would have lunch together all the time. You know, he would eat an apple with some peanut butter, and there I'd be with my salad and whatever. Um, and I would say to him, it's all beautiful. These teachings are beautiful. I can't believe I haven't heard about them. But are they realistic? Mm-hmm. Um, how does it translate in real life when you have people with all their different circumstances? And and he would talk candidly with me and, and always give me food for thought. It was a very gentle, um, dare I say natural, um, catechesis that he did with me. But it was working with the couples where I saw the fruits of that truth. And, um, and it took about three years when again I had one of these aha experiences and 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 realized wow this really is at the heart of the marital relationship the intimate life of of the one flesh union of the spouses and their sacred um entrustment I mean we used to call it a duty right Right. um uh, as part of our church language but that God entrusted husband and wife with the powers of love and life and the gift of procreation. Um, and that's when I realized, why doesn't every, everybody else understand this? Because if you build, if you build the house firmly uh, on, uh, on the ground of Christ, and, um, and if you live God's truth as what he gifted humanity with, his true design, um, that's that's pretty much what you need to make it through life, especially building a good marriage and a, a solid family and having that domestic church that we all talk about, which, again, is beautiful theological teaching. But in reality, it's life and it's life with substance and it's life with real love, not fake love um, or not superficial feelings. I mean, it's it's will and reason with emotion and effort. Um, it's a lot of passion and a lot of sacrifice, of suffering and joy. I mean, you see it all. And, you know, in retrospect, I realized I saw that in my parents who lived good Catholic lives. Um, um, and my father was always very willing to speak uh, to the embarrassment of my mother <laughs> about their <laughs> marital life. And, and he was very proud that they follow church teaching yeah. by using the rhythm method at the time. And um, my NFP couples telling me in their their language how, how they lived their lives, it was similar to my parents. And and it drew me into the reality as a you know a single person yeah. to say wow 
That is true. So that's the long wow. story of how that's great. Evolved. That's great. That's great. Okay, so this is not entirely related, but you said something quite really beautiful about abandonment to God and abandonment of your desires to the Lord. And the things that you were desiring to do were good things. You talk about ecumenism and uh, understanding church history and and being a professor and giving of yourself to the Lord and those things. But could you elaborate a little bit more just about what that was for you? I mean, I think that's a real question that people have in their own discernments. Right. Um, I know myself, I can speak about that even, you know, things that I thought I was going to be doing at this point, I'm not. And I'd like to say I'm, I'm docile, but I, I'm not, I mean, I, I go kicking and screaming, you know, like, you know, it's like, all right, Lord, this is what you want. I, I guess, I guess this is it, you know? So just to walk me through that a little bit more, then we can get back to talking yeah, about Humana Vitae, if you don't mind. Right, 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 right. I, well, but it is it is the life with the Lord, isn't it? Um, it is. uh, you have to, um, I, I would say, as long as you have a deep desire to do God's will, and um, yes, we have friends, we have loved ones who we can share things with to help you discern um, and yes, um, it's always important to, um, I've always used confession as a time to, um, uh, also e- e- explore what I'm hanging on to that maybe I need to let go of that could be sinful. Um, so confession always plays a role as well, although that's really not the venue for spiritual direction. Sure, you really do sure. have to have a spiritual director. Sure. And I didn't have a spiritual director until when, until, 1988, I guess, or no, in 1987 as well. Yeah, I finally um, got a spiritual director who I stuck with. Um, but but I think it's, um, it's the constant um, life of prayer and um, mindfulness, to use an overused yeah, word. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> the buzzword. But it's oh, <laughs> the mindfulness of your walk with the Lord and a regular, besides that, you know, I, I think most people who are in touch with God um, talk to him throughout the day in a regular kind of, you know, um, dialogue throughout the day and trying to be um, aware of his presence. Uh, but but taking the time to have some silent prayer time with him, too. And I'm really not um, one of these people who has the lights on in her house all the time. You know, I'm not smells and bells and mystical experiences. I'm, I'm more like if, if God's going to talk to me, I usually just know I have to do something. It's kind of like having marching orders, you know? Uh, But I think it's because of the time spent in silent prayer. I would say that. You followed through with it. And obviously the fruit of it speaks for itself in terms of saying, this is what I've done. And this is how I've, I've been in, in, in abandonment to that divine providence, um, yeah, and trusting yeah. God's will in my life. That Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, because again, you know, you should have a plan for your life you because absolutely. I mean, that's healthy. It's healthy to yeah, acknowledge yeah. what are your talents? What are your gifts? What do you think God has, um, um, called you to share with people because it's a way of loving. Um, and so you should make plans, Correct. but, but, you know, sometimes if you're if you're trying to force something uh, like just before um, 
just before I was able to say yes in that lens of 87, I had applied to so many graduate schools, which every one of them for my doctoral program I got into, but there was no money for a scholarship. Mm -hmm. And I was still paying my student loans on my undergraduate and my MA program. And I thought, I'm not going to do student loans for PhD, especially in a field where I'm lucky if I'm going to get a job and make $10,000 a year. (laughs) 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 So I was being very practical. Um, but, But so I had... I had so many dead ends of trying to get a scholarship. And um, boy, once I, I, I let go, um, by 1990, when Bishop McHugh said I could come to Washington, D.C., he said, and the Bishop's Conference will pay for half of your doctoral program. Wow. I thought, wow, wow. And I, I, I still knew I had to get the doctorate mm-hmm. and I had to go through that discipline. And I thought maybe the Lord will want me to do teaching later. <laughs> I don't know. So I mean, there was still like, a, I would say like a milligram of hope that was uh, stuck in there for maybe uh, the point was for me to prepare myself to be in place to do whatever God wanted me to do. Um, I think silent prayer on a daily basis uh, was part of how God speaks in silence when you don't even know. Um, you don't have to feel it. Sometimes you feel like an idiot because you're just like working hard to get the thoughts out of your head and trying to just hang on to, I love you, Lord. I'm here. I just love you. And 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 whatever you want, let me know. Wow. And he's silent most of the time. Yes. Really? You can't talk to me like Moses with the burning bush? Come on. <laughs> I know you're capable but of it. I, I mean, you've shown that. yourself to, to yeah. I read the stories where you've, exactly. you've, you've done this, but it's not that I don't believe. Yeah. It's just not my experience. That's, yeah. that's what I say about yeah. often many things. So. Uh, Teresa, okay, yeah, wow, it, this has it, been great. It, it, I don't, I mean, we can talk about Humana Vitae, I guess, if we want to <laughs> switch gears, but yeah, it's all beautiful because it's all, it's all connected in, in, uh, and I just appreciate your, your, um, your, your groundedness. Thank you for that. Thank you for your, your, your grounded spirituality here and your realism and the pragmatism that, that is in the way that the Lord speaks. I think the Lord speaks to me very similarly, um, through the reality of the circumstances that I find myself in. So. You know, when we talk about humana vitae, when we talk about contraception, I, I, and sometimes I feel like it's not talked enough and other times I'm like, maybe it's talked too much, but I really, honestly, I, I, everything goes back to this question. I, I think that when we talk about abortion or gender theory or gay marriage or any of these things, in my estimation, it really centers back at this document in this moment in history when contraception became the the way that things were supposed to be done because it's right then and there that we see the separation of of what the inherent meaning of the sexual act is now of course prior to you know they talk about the world's oldest profession you know it's not gardening you know it's 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 right so there's right. always been a history of of sex for pleasure for pleasure's sake and there's always been an inclination or a falling towards that. And in it, that's, I mean, I get it. It makes sense, of course. You know, it's such a powerful emotional experience. But, but those were always the exceptions. I mean, the, 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 by and large, the reality was that, that it, was, it was considered uh, this, this union. And, and it, it's both the, per, the procreative and the pleasure 
as soon as you separate both and you exalt the pleasure over the union, you make the, the not, I mean, the, the pleasure over the, the uh, procreative side of it, and you make the procreative side of it optional. Well, now you've just redefined the whole thing, the whole system. And so, That's so right. under, under that new definition, yeah, you're now getting to the point where you say, well, how can you say one preference is better than the other? In that inner logic, that makes a lot of sense to ask questions like that. So, so I think the logic is what's flawed, which is why we need to kind of go back and, and say, okay, like, so, so let, let's examine, let's just start here with Humana Vitae. It comes out July 25th, my birthday, uh, 1968, although I wasn't born in 1968. I wasn't alive yet. My parents weren't married yet, but it, it, com- <laughs> it comes out in 1968 and, and it, my understanding from priests that I know who are alive then, it, it just, it, it, it rocks the church. Like it was, there was a real movement. Everybody was expecting Pope Paul VI to say contraception is okay. Maybe not everybody, but there was a, there was a real movement within the church that was saying the church is going to get on board with this. Um, artificial birth control now is legal and it's, 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 the, it's the new, um, it's the answer you know, to a lot of these problems that we're talking about. They're the real problems. That, I mean, they're not... The real problems of of having too many kids, not having too many kids, a problem. But you know, irregular cycles, all the pastoral questions That's that we need right. to speak about, That's the difficulties right. of of raising family, you know, and a limited budget, all that stuff is real. And so, contraception right. is viewed as like here's the answer. And then right. when the Pope goes the opposite and says and doubles yeah. down on the church's teaching, it was mm-hmm. really my understanding. Again, you're and this is why I want to, I'm eager to talk to you about as a as a church historian. Like what was going on 1968. Why was this such a contentious issue? Why was it surprising or was it not surprising by some? Just kind of walk me through what was happening then. Um, Yeah, well, we were already in the third phase of the modern sexual revolution. The modern sexual revolution began in the 19th century. Uh, Most historians date it as late 19th century. In my dissertation, I I make an argument that I think you could trace it earlier to uh, Thomas Malthus um, in the earlier part of the 19th century. Um, uh, It had a second phase in the 20s, um, and the third phase was the 60s. So what was going on in 68? By then, people acknowledged that... um, Within marriage, it was perfectly um, moral to regulate births because it was responsible for parents to be able to take care of a certain number of children. So if you were poor, you shouldn't be having 20 kids was the mentality. That mentality started in, in, in easily uh, um, 1823 um, or so, when the Neo-Malthusians started promoting uh, that idea of the poor people, because Thomas Malthus is late 1700s, mm. and he first came out with his theory of population that if if uh, that the root of all society's problems um, has to do with the poor having too many children. Wow. He blamed poverty and injustice on the poor having too many children. Uh, but his his um, approach at the time, he was an Anglican minister, was to um, delay marriage and tell the poor not to have sexual relations too many times within marriage, like restrain yourself. He would he did not promote what they called preventives. Preventives was the um, it was the nineteenth century word for what we would call birth control. Okay. So uh, his friends disagreed with him, and his friends um, said, "No, no, no. They should use preventives. The poor should use preventives um, because." 
people should just be able to take care of the um, number of children that they have the money to take care of. Um, and when you think of that kind of rationale of, well, sure, um, I, if, I, if I'm a poor person or I have limited resources, how am I going to take care of uh, an indiscriminate number of children in my marriage? I have to regulate. And before the modern period, the way people regulated was abstinence. Mm -hmm. um, we have no concept of that in our day and age. So um, uh, really? it was a culture. I, did, I, didn't, oh, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know that. That's, yeah, yeah. that's no, news. No, you no, just, no. just broke the internet with that. That was unbelievable. <laughs> you do not need sex to live. You really don't. <laughs> what? Teresa, stop it. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> um, so anyhow, so that mentality of um, by 1968, the mentality of, of realizing a good in marriage that, yes, it's good to take care of the children you have. Therefore, we will limit our numbers of children. There's that mentality. There's also the uh, mentality of um, um, the aspirations of the husband and wife. Um, the woman's movement was also in like phase two mm -hmm. of the woman's movements by the 1960s, where a woman, um, first of all, she realized that she should have the final say in what was going on uh, with her own body. If you remember that home, our bodies, ourselves, mm -hmm. which I think is the incorrect mentality in marriage. Because in marriage, it should be husband and wife together mutually deciding about children, even though the wife will um, obviously um, have to bear the burden of, of, of uh, gestation and, and uh, giving birth to the child. And still, uh, the way men and women are, are made, women still have that emotional uh, bonding that is different and um, um, really compels her to want to care for the little ones, you know, before yeah, they're sure. um, too old, right? So, um, so, but the the modern feminist movement had been again from the 19th century pounding out the idea that a woman's body was her own, and a woman's decision to have children should be her own. Uh, so that was there, um, plus the idea of, um, of self-fulfillment, um, that whole idea of, um, of self-actualization and using my gifts in the world and, um, and uh, society starting to criticize the housewife. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the woman is going to stay home with her children. So the idea of birth control could free her from that, you know. Right. Um, so you had that. And then we and also again, had the population. And just to say again, like, it's not that the, the church isn't against responsible parenthood and that is necessary or self-fulfillment. Right. That those, those ideas right. in and of themselves aren't what's problematic. It's, right. it's the means upon which that the the solutions were, were, were sought after. That's what became the problem. Yes. And it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's the means, but it's also, it is also the mentality. The exaltation of it, you know, the, the, the making that the end is that was like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the mentality of, um, I suppose it's, um, um, well, it goes against what we just spoke about, even with like a, like the, the abandonment, you know, concept of yeah, like there's, right, a, there's right. a, just it, even that conversation we just had about like, yeah, 
there's an element of 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 life that we have to acquiesce and recognize that we are not in full control of everything. That's right, and and there's a pragmatism that yeah. has um, again has grown in strength in the modern period, a pragmatism and a self reliance um, that is just. Um, it's out of control because when you think of spacing and limiting births in a family, you also have to acknowledge God's the creator. You also, as a couple have to say, what does the Lord God want for our family, for our lives? Who are these people going to be? They're not products. I mean, look at how the medical community talks about products. Products of conception. conception, It's awful. They're people. Right people with an eternal destiny. And that goes right back down to scripture of God giving man and woman the divine command to be fruitful and multiply. Um, You know, this is a sacred uh, responsibility. And so so you can't have that type of um, sterile pragmatism Mm. enter into the decision to plan and space births. And so so the church is trying to preserve the gift and preserve the union of the marriage. And by 1968, pragmatism was running amok, you know. Uh, and then you had, I was going to say, the population bomb. Yeah. You had a lot of false information about numbers of people being too much, as if people were the problem, when people are only the problem when we're being selfish. <laughs> Yeah, right? right, right. Governments can't right. governments take care of their people in right. a non-selfish way, right? in a non-authoritarian, <laughs> dictatorial way, right? Can't can neighbors take care of neighbors? Uh, I mean, it's a deeply we cynical even... approach to human behavior is to say then that y- y- sin has the final say, or that that yeah. that's the only way that we operate, and there's no capacity for for good in the midst of this, and it's it's right. a hopeless it's a hopeless pragmatism, I think, right. that says that we right. have all the answers in it. So. So yeah. like, so the church doubles down. I mean, I, I is am I right to have heard that like, Carol Wotila played a role in this? And in, 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 oh in, yes, yeah, he did. Sure, in, he did. And saying like, we have to be clear on this because other cardinals were 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 not on well, board. And, and he and he did some of the drafting. That's of what I've heard also. Okay, yeah, yeah, great. So. He, that he um, was in communication with Paul the mm-hmm. Yes, but Paul the was also a mystic. Okay, and he did pray about this, and he did uh, work with um, married couples. Um, he was very observant about the um, sacredness of the relationship and what was at stake. Mm. He was very much aware of that. Um, Sadly, within the church, because theology was embracing the historical critical method, the scientific method, as they used to call it, of doing theology, there was a gross um, de-mythologizing uh, going on mm. uh, of everything in the church. Yeah. And so in 1968, um, there's a great book, if you're interested in the um, Catholic University, um, uh, problem yeah. when so many professors came out against. Um, Explain that to the listeners. So what happened? Wait, I mean, uh, uh, what what happened in 1968? Why? What would a CUA? 
lead? Uh, why did C- they lead? CUA committed the ultimate sin, in my opinion. I mean, honestly, if I were a bishop at that point in time, I would have taken my crozier. <laughs> <laughs> Walked over there like a bishop from New Jersey. Crick, crick him in. That's, a, New Jersey. that's what it's there for, right? It's the shepherd pulling him back in, you know. Just pulling him back in, uh, maybe even hitting him over the head. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, but the arrogance, the absolute arrogance of some of their professors in theology at the time, Charles Curran being one, um, Robert Hunt being another, um, uh, it's, it's wonderfully told in the book, The Coup at Catholic University, The 1968 Revolution in American Catholic Education by Peter Mitchell, Ignatius Press. I'll put a link to that out. in the show notes. Uh, it is a fabulous history. Oh, awesome. A fabulous history. Yeah. He, he shows, um, how the, the these young professors in their 30s or so um, thought they had the answer on everything and actually were exalting themselves as an integral part of the magisterium, which is an extreme wow. reading. It's wow. an extreme. I know. Wow. Only you. Only, we wow. can do this when we're young, right? <laughs> wow. That's <laughs> they, unbelievable. They, well, right. Wow. They they had this this uh, this um, extreme understanding of what sacred tradition is and how it's formed mm. and how the magisterium operates, and they knew the tradition better than the bishops, including the bishop of Rome. Uh, I mean, it was nothing but academic arrogance, mm. as far as I'm concerned, and a superficial, uh, again. Um, pragmatic reading of Catholic theology of marriage and um, morality. Um, they said nothing about the the um, truth we find in in Revelation in Scripture. They um, said nothing about the truth of the marital relationship and the one flesh um, union. They they knew nothing about the public. Um, how should I say it? The public connection from the private lives of couples to the public uh, ramifications of their behaviors. Right there, there, there was no sense of how what goes on intimately between a husband and wife can affect the world. So look at what's going on in Europe right now. You have a population implosion. People are not having children yeah, it, in the United States. They aren't States. abstaining in Europe either, right? Isn't that? No, no. <laughs> I mean, the contraception is facilitating this sterile environment and people are not having children. Right. In the United States, there have been studies where um, young people have been saying that um, um, children are nice, but um, um, uh, they're they're like a footnote in marriage. They're right. not necessary to marriage. Well, where did that mentality come from? Except for to say that children are a choice. Mm. Well, that's partially true. But again, they're not products of conception. They're beings with an in- eternal destiny. And there's an interconnectedness that's being rejected with contraception. Right. Um, and these professors at Catholic U... Um, filled with this hubris and um, honest to God, I, I see it as an intoxic, intox, they were intoxicated mm. with the secular um, false messages of 
scientific inquiry and demythologizing uh, theology and historical critical methods and blah, 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 blah. For well, God's sake, do they ever pray? That's what I want to know. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Martin. I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Dr. Teresa Natare to encourage you right now. You know, listen, 2021 is right around the corner, and you might be thinking, after an incredibly stressful 2020, what would be the perfect thing to do with your spouse? Well, if you're thinking that, we have the answer for you at Faith and Marriage. Come and join us for one of our upcoming marriage retreats at the beautiful St. Joseph Abbey Retreat Center in Covington, Louisiana. The center is nestled away from the rustle and bustle of the world, offering a serene and relaxing experience like no other. You'll hear encouraging talks from couples that are walking through life just like we are and have ample time for you and your spouse to be able to pray together and reconnect and have very intentional and meaningful conversations. And as a bonus, the rooms at the retreat center actually have queen-size beds. If you ever try to go on a marriage retreat with a room that has two twins, uh, you know the problem. So to learn more or to register for one of our upcoming retreats, visit us at faithandmarriage.org. My understanding, right, is, and I don't know how much this plays into it, again, going back to the context of where we were, in 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut is the Supreme Court mm -hmm. decision that basically, again, please tell me if I'm right or wrong in this, my understanding of this is very limited, is that basically says this is, it allows for contraception, allows for, for the marital act to be this private enterprise. This, right. in the end, is the precursor that leads towards, you know, Roe versus Wade uh, once you've completely privatized this. So in the right. country, we're seeing that um, that the laws are beginning to reflect this movement, these movements that are happening. Um, right. And again, that's why then the church says, like, it, like, no, like this is like we have to we have we have to stay firm on on what the belief is and why because what yeah. look at what we're going to lose uh, should we cave on this. And in Pope Paul the sixth, right in in Humana Vitae at the end, he lays out the three warnings, doesn't he? What is it? it or maybe not at the end. It's somewhere like if if well, yeah, it's in his prophecies about yes. what, will what will happen to a culture. Yeah, if you re if you reject God's plan for married love, and he says governments will try to control people's fertility. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that. We've seen that here with the HHS mandate, yep. uh, with forcing people, uh, employers to cover contraceptive usage. We've seen it in China with the one child policy. Sure. Uh, you know, so governments will try doing that. Uh, we will see a general uh, disrespect and lowering of regard of a man to a woman, yep. which we've seen that too. Yeah. Um, and we will see that our youth will become per basically degraded, perverted, that um, uh, calls to live the virtue of chastity will not be understood. They'll be rejected, um, which is also true. Correct. Um, because, again, what is chastity but that virtue that helps us understand how to love each other within the boundaries of who we are? Um, chastity protects, as the catechism says, the powers of life and love. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not an oppressive virtue. It is a freeing virtue. Mm -hmm. It makes for healthy relationships and healthy boundaries. Um, and Paul VI knew that, and he and he put that 
um, in in Humanae Vitae as warnings. But what's interesting, in my dissertation research on the um, Anglican Lambeth 1930 conference, which I, I argue represents the first break in the Christian tradition, official break, uh, uh, on uh, the contraception uh, issue, explain. It's actually the ex- first... explain the Lambeth Conference. What what is it? Um, and yeah, what happened the, in 1930? Uh, the um, the Anglican Communion um, started meeting um, as um, their bishops globally um, from the 19th century, and every 10 years they would meet. And in 1930, when they met uh, in England at the Archbishop of Canterbury's home, um, uh, the uh, Lambeth Palace, uh, they uh, ag- agreed in a resolution, Resolution 15, to allow contraceptive use within marriage for um, hard cases for certain um, circumstances when the health of the mother um, or the finances of the couple um, created such a burden. It's a it's a very carefully worded um, uh, restricted use of contraception. Um, but but that represents officially the first uh, acceptance of contraceptive use in marriage uh, by a Christian body of um, uh, of bishops, and uh, they did that in 1930. Um, and uh, of course, the Catholic Church at the time responded with Casti Canubi, mm-hmm. because that decision in England was made for the Anglican Communion in August of 1930, and Casti came out in um, December mm. of 1930, wow. where the Church's teachings and the Christian tradition was completely um, uh, supported and reaffirmed. But the reaction of people in the press to the bishops' decision in August, the Anglican bishops. And I I analyzed uh, English-speaking publications in England, Ireland, and uh, the United States. The reason why I restricted myself to just analyzing those publications for a reaction was because later on, and actually very early on, um, the birth control movement was being led by American and British leaders. Mm-hmm. That those, those are the people who really infected the entire world with a contraceptive mentality. Yeah. Um, but Mar- Margaret Christians Sanger and the like, is that what we're speaking oh, yeah, about? Yeah. Margaret Sanger, Marie Stopes. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's amazing. And, and all of those people also were colored by the whole eugenics um, right. uh, philosophy as well, that only the fit should reproduce and the unfit, meaning people of color, poor, uh, uneducated, should not. Uh, that's that whole movement is a whole other story. Yeah. But um, but Christians responding to the 1930 decision said such things. One Presbyterian man said, what are we to read in 1980? Will a, a Lambeth conference say that suicide is OK wow. if a physician can assist a person to die? Um, oh my uh, gosh! Yes, yes, you yeah. you did read that. Maybe not oh, 1980, yeah. but you did in 2020. Yeah. I mean, yes, right, exactly. Uh, another uh, 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 a retired um, Anglican bishop at the time, Charles Gore was his name. Um, 
nearly, you can hear him weeping as he wrote these words. He said, do they not understand what they did with this decision? He said, do they not see what the birth control leaders are lobbying for now? They are lobbying for abortion to be legal. Uh, and, 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 and so he saw the connection that abortion goes hand in hand with contraception, which we know whenever a country um, has contraceptive use high in the country, abortion go, goes as a companion to it because right. it takes care of the, the supposedly contraceptive failures. That's right. Charles correct. Gore predicted that uh, another person wrote um, that and many people wrote, actually, that there would be a general um, lowering of um, standards of morality, sure. that our youth will become immoral, that adultery will increase because of contraceptive use. Christians did not like this decision. They That's saw amazing. it as as like a stab in the heart of, of humanity and it was going to attack the family. That's so uh, surprising because now it seems like the Catholic Church is the only one who's standing oh, up against it. Exactly. And so even when I have conversations with her Protestant friends of mine, many of them actually are really good people. And, and I mean, they're all really good people. I shouldn't say it that way. Like, but you know, they, when it comes to this issue, no, I, they came yeah. out really bad in my mouth. Anyway, so <laughs> like, like when it comes to like yeah, just the I conversations know. I tend to have is some of them are like, we don't even practice NFP because we just trust whatever God wants and whatever God wants then then the human plan or whatever is, is against that. So, um, but in terms of official teaching, it, it's, it's, everybody knows that the Catholics right. are the only ones who, who don't, who don't support abortion. I mean, in contraception specifically, I mean, obviously all the Christian churches still have well, stance against there abortion. Are, there are some pockets of orthodoxy, Eastern orthodoxy that sure. still will maintain the, the Orthodox have always been, um, um, less inclined to parse this out in theological terms. Um, uh, but I, but there are even websites for a Greek Orthodox um, Christians um, that promote the the ancient teachings of um, of um, you know uh, married love as uh, and the gift of life as God uh, created it for us. Uh, there are also evangelical Christians and Pentecostalist Christians who are more biblically concerned and. Um, also involved in the natural family planning community or pretty much do what we would call providentialism as what you just discussed, right. uh, um, not using anything um, uh, for planning their uh, births in the family. But as Paul VI said in Humana Vitae, and he says it straight up in the beginning of the encyclical, the question, the modern question that people have today of regulation of births is a worthy question. Right. It, it's not an immoral question, but he says it has to be properly understood. Right. And and the norms that God gave us, um, uh, the natural law, as what um, Catholic theology has always described it as, um, uh, need it needs to be preserved. You need to live within the um, structures of the natural law. Well, what is the natural law? Well, it's God's law. It's how he created men and women to be, right? Um, he, he's written in it on, in our hearts. We know, we know as human beings that if a woman is carrying a baby in her womb, she's not carrying, you know, a mountain lion, <laughs> right? Or I mean, a bag of it, tissues. It, it, 
Yeah, it, it, it's it. not just a stack. What of, else yeah, is it going to be? It's, it's exactly. It's not going to exactly. turn into a palm tree, you know. Like it's exactly. <laughs> like it's it's a person. Yeah. It's what it is. That's what yeah. it's going to become. But you yeah. see, obviously, the hijacking of so that question's the right one. I mean, it's just crafty marketing, Planned Parenthood. God bless them. I mean, like that's oh, yeah. the name. The name of the organization just speaks yeah. to this notion that like we're supporting responsibility. Well, when, when, you know, we're yeah, supporting. I, that 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 this is the way it's supposed to be, um, yeah. And uh, and it's just a misnomer of an organization in well, my it estimation. Is, it's built on. Here's the here's the problem. The birth control movement was built on human goods and lies. Mm. The human goods are um, you do want to be responsible right. um, and take care of the certain amount of children that you can have. And yes, if a war is going on around you, you don't want to get pregnant. While a war is going on around you, or famine sure. is in the land, whatever. So, so you you practice periodic sexual abstinence. I mean, that's what people did if they knew that they were going to trek across the desert and and there wasn't going to be any water. How are you going to have a, a baby and and take care of him? Right. Uh, so, so yeah, th- those are goods. It's reasonable. It's reasonable to want to plan a future for your children, to educate them, and to have a home that you can care for. All of that is good, um, but it is a lie to say that um, you can separate the procreative nature of sexual intercourse from its unitive nature. And it is a lie to say that the union, the sexual union of man and woman means nothing but mutual consent to each other. So going right? back going back to the descent then of the CUA, I mean, is that what they were articulating specifically? Was that like sex can be these things? No, no. What they were they were they were basically attacking the notion of natural law having a a, a way to um uh, uh inform us about God's plan uh, they were attacking um, the uh, idea that medicine cannot intervene in the um, conjugal act because if you can, and this is an age-old argument in the modern period as well, if you could use um, anesthesia to uh, knock a person out when you're operating on operating on them and you're doing a good, um, you could use contraception here and there to limit births, uh, especially, and this is what they would argue, especially as the whole marriage would be open to life. They're going to have children eventually. Why does each and every act of intercourse have to be open uh-huh. to life? Uh-huh. That's what they were attacking. They right. were attacking the logic of, of church teaching as being flawed uh, and not practical. And they also were attacking um, the magisterium's spiritual authority to pronounce on revelation. And they were saying that they as theologians, as well as married couples, as baptized Christians, have a role uh, and an authority to say and speak in this area as well. So so it was a lot more complicated. And they really were going after the magisterium. So That's what they were going after. What was the fallout of that? I mean, what would it well, be? the fallout was uh, so many. Uh, I mean, they, they, um, gosh, they, uh, they, they, they signed a petition. Um, I think over nineteen or twenty priests or more 
were left the priesthood in the Archdiocese of Washington at the time. Um, uh, the theologians basically uh, put a stranglehold on um, the dean of the School of Theology at the time and the um, the trustees, the bishops who were trustees of the university at the time, making uh, an argument also linking this to free speech, this whole business of free speech in a Catholic university, not understanding the role of the magisterium and the truth of church teaching um, in a Catholic university, uh, they basically muzzled it. Mm -hmm. That's why we have problems with our Catholic universities right now, mm -hmm. because, because of this uh, revolt that these theologians did at Catholic U, it just, um, it just exaggerated and distorted the issue of academic freedom, the nature of spiritual authority, especially as located in the magisterium, and, and it affected uh, Catholic education from that point on. Do you think, again, I'm just, I'm totally speculating here. So you please tell me, I mean, thoughts, you know, as you've read some of this stuff. I mean, it's 1968, again, thinking historically, we're, we're what, three years removed from the Second Vatican Council? Vatican Council was 62 to 65, is that right? Somewhere in that ballpark? Um, oh, it, it, yeah, 65. Right. right. And so we're, yeah. we're fresh on the heels of that. And it, it took a generation of Catholics before the church like realized like what Vatican II really was trying to do. And, and the initial thought was, this is the church opening up to the modern world. Uh, priests are going to get, are going to get married. Um, uh, you know, church is going to kind of, you know, Descent, I guess, that's more egalitarian. And some of these things that were, were kind of coming out, which, again, to some degree, I know that there was a real conversation about. But but it, did that, to some degree, I don't know, you think that like invigorated this descent, that emboldened, like a misinterpretation of Vatican Council allowed CUA to be like, well, you know what, this is the new church. This is us. This is how we're doing this. This is what it means to be Catholic now in the modern age. Yeah. We can protest against the Pope, you know, right. in this regard. I don't I know. know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe know, I'm I just speculating too much. Yeah, I, I, I think those are all good questions, and one does wonder. Um, uh, but I think it's bigger than Vatican II, because I think when, when you look at history in the West, the Age of Enlightenment, and the general um, questioning of what is authority and what is true, are there absolute truths, um, that whole trajectory, that whole wrestling with um, of, of trying to look at the nature of things and trying to, to discern what is or identify what is true, what could be from God, what is human made. Those questions really started uh, bubbling up from uh, the age of enlightenment. So what, that 1700s, uh, late 1600s, um, that that plays a huge role in all of this. Um, the, the questioning of authority that you see even in government, when you think that in the West, that there was a, an idea of, of royalty having a partnership with God and royalty having uh, a sacred responsibility to govern people and then democracy coming up and saying, no, the people can govern themselves. And, and even our founding fathers in the United States um, saying we have inalienable rights. Well, those inalienable rights come from natural law. Um, Humanity wrestling with all of those things through time, uh, of course, it's going to have an impact on the church. And when you look at how the Catholic Church has reflected on the truths of God through theology, um, 
you know, the patristic period, the very first period after the apostolic period when the apostles died out, and then you had church um, leaders, mostly bishops and theologians, they reflected on scripture. They prayed and they reflected on scripture. And But then you had different philosophies that influenced some of them at the time. So you start seeing, you start seeing in the human experience using tools of the trade so that by the time you get to Thomas Aquinas, he's using Aristotle's method to reflect upon God. You know, it's not like he disowned scripture, but he needed other ways of thinking so that you can, because Again, we keep trying to define God, and you just can't, right? <laughs> you really can't. <laughs> but Scripture is where he speaks, and you can see his face. <laughs> That's right. Yes, but, I so, think Benedict said something beautifully in his uh, in his book when he's, you know, Joseph Ratzinger, Introduction to Christianity, you know, at the very beginning. It's like, you know, you just, you can't, you, God isn't some little trinket that we put in, the, in our pocket and we pull it out. Exactly. You know, like we just can't, you can't define God that simply. Um, but sorry, right. keep going, keep going. Well, so, but so anyhow, when you march through time like that and you look at how people, um, how people reflected upon their world, certainly the scientific method and evidence-based method way of doing science greatly influenced everything, mm -hmm. philosophy, theology, I mean, even the arts, mm -hmm. my gosh, that whole movement toward realism, which I'm sick of at this point in time. I want magic in the arts. <laughs> I want mystery in the arts. I don't want realism. <laughs> uh, so, so all of that, you know, in the 1960s, we had the perfect storm of an eruption of lots of creativity that was wonderful, lots of necessary questioning of age-old ways of doing things. Um, uh, but then I think, I think science, that scientific mentality won out in many ways, which um, it's the prove me mentality. Uh, and I think that affected um, our way of doing theology. Vatican II was necessary. It needed to challenge the church to be in, in intimate dialogue with our culture. We should not be afraid of our culture. We're supposed to Christianize the culture. We're supposed to bring the kingdom of God into the world. Christ has us to use, you know. Um, and we're supposed to be we're supposed to be doing this until he comes again, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> soon is it sometime now. soon? That's the prayer. <laughs> That's what I'm kind of wondering <laughs> at this point in time. When is he gonna say enough's enough? Enough's enough. <laughs> But, but so, so Vatican, Vatican II had um, a lot of youthful enthusiasm and necessary um, tasks to accomplish. I think that um, I think that Vatican II also, though, exposed. And now I'm borrowing from um, um, Father Thomas Wynandy, who is uh, just a magnificent theologian in our church. Um, I think Vatican II exposed the um, immaturity, the theological and spiritual immaturity of many of our leaders and our people. And, um, and Father Wynandi makes a beautiful argument in a very simple article, an essay that he wrote recently about Vatican II, that um, the Holy Spirit could be showing us 
you know, here we go back to the original conversation on abandonment. The Holy Spirit could be showing us what we need to let go of. Mm. So right now, do we in the Roman Catholic Church need embroidered vestments or Mm -hmm. beautiful liturgical music or even buildings? Do we really need that? No. Mm. But we need the gospel. We need water to baptize with, right? We need bread and wine and a validly consecrated priest to bring the Eucharist to us. Um, All of these other things are just stuff. And one of the one of the things that Vatican II, I for me, um, I thought made clear is that you have to try to identify what's the historical buildup that um, is nice to do but not necessary to sacred tradition, right. and what is really from God, which is sacred tradition. Um, uh, and sadly, at the time of Vatican II, the exposure of um, that type of theological spiritual, ecclesial immaturity um, just happened. Um, And I I think these young men in the 1960s who were all priests, who were rebelling at Catholic U, I think they were products of their time. And I think they were part of what was immature. And yeah, were they smart? They sure were smart, you know, but they did wrong. And, And they did, they massively failed on Humana Vitae. They, but again, it was just the timing couldn't have been more perfect for chaos to happen, given the third phase of the modern sexual revolution and all of these other ways of doing science and philosophy and theology that converged, you know, in their time period. Um, and thank God for John Paul II. He was gifted to the church and on uh, his beautiful, beautiful mystical thinking, right? It's scripturally based, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. philosophically sound. Yeah, for sure. Right. And my gosh, and and he had such a sensitivity even to the times and culture and people, and um, being able to begin with a person, mm-hmm. and 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 putting the person in relationship to God, and and using scripture, um, and, and all of that, developing what we have called today the theology of the body. Right. Um, that's just a magnificent synthesis of what we know to be true about the person, human sexuality, and marriage and married life. And we know, that, again, the theology of the body concludes. All the teaching of the theology of the body leads itself towards humana vitae to, to reaffirm and to give the depth That's right. of understanding yeah. why the church reaffirms this. And so, we're, and you mean, know, let me also say one thing that uh, I haven't said about humana vitae. People who are listening should read it. Yes, Go on the Vatican sure. website yep. and read it because... Rather than seeing uh, or, or or discovering that it's punitive in its language, mm-hmm. it is not. It's not at all. It is absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is absolutely beautiful. Get great and quotes it, like children really are the supreme gift of marriage. I mean, like that's one of the, the great ver- lines in it. It's just, it just right. is. It, right. And married love is total, permanent, yes. fruitful, faithful, uh, exclusive. I, I mean, you know, when you, when you look at, uh, at, at, what is laid out for us to consider as as what marriage is, as what I said when I first met Bishop McHugh and he made me read it. Wow, sounds really nice. <laughs> it's really beautiful. But is it practical? Well, yes, it is. It's not an ideal. It is the reality. If people dare, dare to live it. It's a hard reality, though. I mean, and I think oh, but, sure but I think that's some of the truth. And this is what I believe the Christian message 
lands more effectively when it deals with reality. I think the, mm-hmm. sometimes the overly romanticized spiritual notions that we toss about just do not give people real substance. It's not, it's not, it's not anchored in reality. Like in the reality right. is to say like, yes, this is hard, but yes, mm-hmm. this is the real truth and the gifts and it will bless you. So a, a buddy mm-hmm. of mine who's a psychologist, you know, the sciences always show that marital satisfaction drops soon after kids, you know, come into the picture. And you know what? That makes sense. Like it's, it's a stressful time. It is what it is. But that, that, that data sometimes is used as propaganda to say, well, then you shouldn't have kids if you care about your marriage. You know, it's kind of misconstrued in that regard. The, the, my, my friend Carlos, what he'll say, he said to me before is, is a, yeah, yeah, everybody knows, everybody knows that marital satisfaction drops, you know, after, after you have kids. But you need to ask that question at the end of somebody's life. You know, that's when, that's when you're asking, it, do you regret having your, your children? Said no one ever, yeah. you know, like yeah. uh, no good person ever. Let me say it that way. You know, it's, it's, it's when you see the totality of a person's life that you really see the tremendous blessing that they are in yours. And I see mm-hmm. that with my kids now. My oldest is 16. We have four. We practice NFP and we, we, we space. It's 16, 12, 10, and six. I mean, like we, we practice the church's teachings and we try to be as responsible as men and we've discerned in our life, you know, the timings of more kids or whatever. It's all still in our, in our, in our, in our, in our, in our um, conversations that Kristen and I have, but man, being able to see my 16 year old now, like, I mean, I miss him as a child for sure as a little one. But yeah. Wow. I mean, like as a 16 year old, it's really awesome. Like sharing life with him and seeing kind of, adulthood like bubbling and and you see it's like right there on the horizon like he's he's really close to being an adult and it's just really awesome to see that like like we have the capacity to like share life together as adults at some point it's really really awesome that's the gift of marriage that's the gift of stability that's the gift of the church's teachings is not to cheapen it or to sugarcoat the the hard truths that take to get there but the, the eternal fruits that we have to take the long game continuously and not trade in cheap mechanisms. It, and, 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 and I know it's hard, but man, when we stick to it over the long haul, it, you know, it, it really does. It really does have a blessing. Oh, it yeah. really does play out. Yeah. It, it's uh, one of my married friends. She likes to say that uh, often she sees um, that marriage is an unrelenting re- request to to give of yourself to give of yourself just an, it, it never stops that you have to keep giving of yourself and and it's true you really do when, when you're when you're in that type of relationship and, and building the family and that that's why we can see that if you have a good family and you're forming your kids well and the love is there and the generosity is there uh, you have an effect on your world you have an effect on your your immediate community, your larger community, the nation, everything. Um, it, it really is. John Paul II said, I think in Familiaris Consortio, the world goes by way of the family. That's right. Uh, That's famous it. quote. That's right? it. That's it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You got it. Yeah. Teresa, I have taken far too much of your time this morning. <laughs> can, can can I ask <laughs> you a few more questions? You, you got you got a little bit more. Can, yeah, just a little bit more. Just okay. So briefly, then you, you're still working at the USCCB. Where where do we stand now, 52 years later, uh, with Humana Vitae and in the church and and 
its impact on on the American church? Well, I, I can tell you that um, our bishops are um, completely bishops of um, John Paul II, theology of the body. Um, they do get it. Um, natural family planning as a diocesan ministry has moved from a person's kitchen to the chancery. So uh, the majority of our marriage and family life directors are trained in NFP, either as promoters or users or even teachers. There was a time in the 1980s when the marriage and family life directors were mostly people who had a master's in social work mm -hmm. and didn't even have uh, an MA in theology. So there's been a real shift. I do think that the John Paul II Institute at Catholic University has played a role in that. Many of these people have gone to that institute. They've gone to Catholic University itself in the School of the, um, Theology, uh, Religious Studies, Theology and Religious Studies. They changed their name. Um, uh, uh, and, and other universities uh, and colleges like Steubenville, for example, has um, uh, cranked out a lot of people. University of Dallas is another one uh, where good uh, Orthodox Roman Catholic theology has been um, uh, taught to leaders. Uh, so, um, so the NFP providers, the national providers, like you mentioned, Couple, Couple League, the Creighton Model Fertility Care, uh, Centers of America, uh, Northwest Symptom Pro, uh, Marquette Model from Marquette University, um, uh, Family of the Americas, Billings Ovulation Method Association, they've all grown so much. Mm -hmm. um, they've become um, so much more professional than what they ever were in the beginning. Um, uh, some of them have apps that they're using uh, at this point in time. All of them are doing some type of distance learning with people, uh, especially during a pandemic. Those people who um, used to have uh, many in uh, live classes have gone the way of uh, web meetings with their um, couples. So I have to say the NFP diocesan leadership community has strengthened and grown over time. Um, but the actual number of Catholics practicing church teaching is still ridiculously low. Mm. So we still have a tremendous amount of work to do. Um, in, in many dioceses, um, having a theology of the body, um, uh, educational seminars, um, uh, Having online classes on that uh, has helped a lot. Um, there are different organizations like Theology of the Body Institute and right. Tobit and, uh, yeah, that are, are doing uh, as much as they can to get the word out. Our young priests are formed very well, um, and um, many individual priests require couples to go through natural family planning training um, for their marriage preparation. We have about 12 12 or 15 dioceses now that actually require NFP training as part of marriage uh, preparation. So, so we've got a lot of good advances. What we really need to do is get at our Catholic physicians and get um, this information into the hands of the medical community. And so there are leaders like Dr. Marguerite DeWayne, who is a very faithful um, Catholic physician 
who has uh, created with um, one of her uh, or several of her colleagues an organization called FACTS, F-A-C-T-S. Their website is factsaboutfertility.org, I think it is. Uh, And they um, have trained physicians and nurses who give um, scientific um, seminars and um, um, workshops to fellow physicians. They're starting with family practice doctors to try to get this information into their hands so that they won't be so opposed to um, uh, people using uh, the natural methods. Uh, we have, of course, Dr. Thomas Hilgers um, at the Pope, at the St. Pope Paul VI um, Institute in Omaha, who has done um, leading work on um, creating NAPRO technology, a woman's uh, ethical woman's healthcare uh, in this area of life, and he keeps cranking out more and more physicians as well, uh, as well as teachers uh, with the entire system that he's created. Dr. Richard Faring at Marquette University, who is trained nurses uh, in the Marquette model of NFP and um, really making uh, trying to make a contribution that way uh, but the medical community is huge if we can if we can reach out to more people I think that will help us uh, but I also have to say we we have to get into the parishes we are not in the parishes Um Parish priests may be doing uh, work with their couples who are coming for uh, marriage prep, but we need to do more for the parish and uh, develop resources for them and ways that they can help their people uh, understand these teachings first. We have to lead with church teaching because um, parents don't understand the harm for their children when they're not teaching their children about the nature of human sexuality, um, the absolute magnificent goodness of the virtue of chastity, and um, and then within marriage, um, the destruction that contraception can do to a couple spiritually. Um, uh, besides even physically, there there's an awful lot that people don't know about the harms, for example, of chemical contraception, um, uh, for example. But in any case, so we have a lot of work we still have to do. We, we have come a long way. Um, and I've seen it in, in this 30 year or so period that I've been um, uh, with the Bishop's Conference, um, but we still have a lot more to do. And I, I'd like us to especially target resources and equipping uh, priests and parishes with um, with um, the resources to, to get this good information to their people and to inspire them, you know, to inspire them. Uh, uh, and as I said, the medical community, those would be the two fronts that I, I think are especially um, important for us to get to. Praise God. That's great. I mean, those are my questions at the end that I sent to you earlier. So that's great to, mm-hmm. to see. I mean, obviously like it's, it's, I believe, yes, that those are the communities we need to get into. And, um, and despite the great efforts that are being made, it just still seems like there's a disconnect, you know, like when I tell people, like even my cousin, I recently had a conversation about NFP and he's like, and I told him that we practice natural family planning and he was like, wow, that's, that's great. You know, like as if I was like turned Amish and like, you know, forsaked <laughs> electricity or something as if that was like a lifestyle choice of, you know, pickling radishes or something in my backyard, right. you know, like it was. I was like, okay, well, that's cool, man. You know, glad you could do that. You know, I was like, well, yeah, this isn't just about that. You know, like this isn't just about being green or anything. So 
Anyways, right, well, right. a lot of work to be done. Um, if people are looking for the resources, a lot of the stuff you spoke about, uh, where, where would you encourage people to go? Uh, well, you could come to the Bishop's Conference website, usccb.org, and um, you'd have to go to um, the natural family planning. I think in the new website, if you put natural family planning into the search bar, um, you could easily get to our section of the website. We um, we list all of the um, American um, uh, providers that people can learn a method from right on that website. We also have uh, a web directory for the dioceses. So if you want uh, in-person classes in your diocese, you can go to it from there. Uh, so that's good. You can read about church teaching from our website. Um, we've got it all links to Vatican websites and summaries of information. So there's plenty for people to uh, to uh, uh, peruse when they come to our website. Fantastic. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Well, Teresa, final question to ask all my first time guests, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? My gosh, the fact that God loves us, that he is, he is, and um, he's got our back and um, he really does. He does love the work of his hands, you know, so that that's always my hope. I have to say. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show. God bless you. Have a great day. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks. That's it, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the show. Many blessings to Dr. Teresa Natari and the good work she's doing for the USCCB. Let's together keep doing the work of encouraging people to embrace the truth and beauty of the way that the human body was designed by God. While at the same time, let's keep in prayer God's mercy that we need every time that we fall short of living that true vision. Have a great day, everybody. God bless and be good.